What a privilege and pleasure it is to worship God together with real passion and vigor. I'm not sure if my voice is going to survive after all that bellowing. But um, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 10. Um, If you have a church Bible in your hand, it's page 845. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to just run out and grab one from the ends of the aisles. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home and to keep it, make it your own. I want to read to you the first 12 verses of the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel, in which we are going to learn about, essentially, Jesus' understanding of love and marriage. But it's framed through the question that was posed to him about divorce. And it goes like this. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, his disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, some of you have been to our Salt Live events. Jeremy was just mentioning one of those. And there's a moment towards the end of the evening when we finish the talks, and we open the floor to Q&A. And this is an unpredictable moment. And those of you who have been there will know that the emotions can be frayed. You can be sat there on edge. I remember not so long back when Felix was giving his talk, and the question came from a very vociferous, angry questioner. And I felt nervous for him. I was sat in my chair sweating. I was like, I'm so glad it's not me up there. (laughs) And um, you know, with bated breath, the question comes, and then you wonder, as the spotlight falls on the, on the speaker, how are they going to handle this particular question? And uh, it's a tense moment. Now, when the Pharisees came to Jesus in this gospel and asked him this particular question about divorce, in many ways it was one of those moments. And it was designed to be that. You'll notice that it said that they, they came to, uh, to test him and ask this question. And the reason is is because Jesus was in an area of the country uh, under the influence of King Herod. King Herod himself being a divorcee. So to ask Jesus this question in public, in a place where he's going to be involved in denouncing the activity of Herod, the very thing for which his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded, puts Jesus in a tight spot. Now, I know that you and I, um, we have different questions in our age that cause us to feel on edge if we're Christian, questions uh, that you don't particularly want to be asked in public or among your colleagues or among your friends, and if asked, you'll do anything to avoid. And this was just such a question. 
But it was also a controversial moment because in Deuteronomy 24, there was one verse in the Bible that had permitted divorce, which is what they reference, where it says Moses had written that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand. And he, he allows provision for divorce, mainly actually to protect the women, to give them an official status as a divorcee because of the sinfulness of the hearts of the men at the time. Now, there was a debate raging at the time of Jesus among the, the Pharisees. And they fell into two camps. On the one hand, there was the camp of a great rabbi called Shammai who said that when Moses said that he, a husband finds some indecency in her, he meant sexual impropriety, that she'd done something wrong in that regard, and therefore he could divorce her. And of course, the same worked in reverse. The assumption was it would work the other way. She could also divorce him for the same reason. There was another rabbi, a man called Hillel, who said, no, 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 you've misread it. What Moses said is he could marry her for something or indecency. And what you could put under the bracket of something was literally... Anything, if she'd burned the dinner, this is literally stuff you can read in the ancient texts expounding the law. If she'd burned dinner, if she wore her hair down in public, if she talked to a strange man on the street, or if even the husband has found somebody who he considers more beautiful, that's something, a grounds for which he can divorce his wife. Now, I want to ask with you this question. When we're thinking about The question of divorce. Are we asking an important question in our day and age? Because I think you'd be... I'd assume that your first reaction to this would be that we're dealing with a somewhat quaint notion that divorce could ever be um, wrong. And that that is an idea from a bygone age. I mean, it was 500 years ago that Henry VIII... Uh, divorced or killed a sequence of wives. This is like we dealt with the issue of divorce centuries ago. We're not raising this again, are we? And of course, you know, when last week a well-known British broadcaster goes on TV and and he comes out live on TV and announces um, that he's gay after 27 years of marriage, nobody, none of the commentators are asking the question whether it's appropriate for him to divorce in that moment. They're celebrating his stunning bravery of, of, you know, of opening up his sexual identity to the watching world. And no one's really asking the question about divorce at this point. We've dealt with that a long time ago. Or when you know, another famous couple engaged in this euphemistic term of conscious uncoupling. I, you know, I have no words. So, <laughs> but the point being that we, we have, we've normalized the whole situation to the degree which no one's really asking the question whether it's wrong or right. It's just assumed if you're not in love anymore or whatever, then of course it's a done deal. Um, the law has changed. It's easy, easy to divorce. Now, as Christians, it shouldn't surprise you that we have a different way of thinking. And I want to give you two reasons at the outset why I think this is vital that we open it up again. One is that as Christians, we need a powerful corrective to the currents of the age in which we live. We live in an age in which the tide is powerfully moving against the Christian ethic on all kinds of issues. And it seems to me that Christians will be swept away with the assumptions of the age if they don't wrestle with what Christ taught on subjects like this which become like moorings in your life and in your faith, help you to know what is right, how to behave, how to live a life that pleases God and causes flourishing. 
One of the most dominant currents that has swept over us over, I would say, more than a hundred years has been what some people call the myth of romantic love. The redefinition of what love is, essentially, and how we have wholesale bought into this redefinition of love. I was reading the book, The Happiness Hypothesis, by Jonathan Haidt, who's an atheist psychologist, but he very articulately describes the myth of romantic love like this. He says that the idea that real love burns brightly and passionately, and then it just keeps on burning until death, and then it just keeps on burning after death as the lovers are reunited in heaven. He says, as I see it, the modern myth of true love involves these beliefs. True love is passionate love that never fades. If you're in true love, you should marry that person. If love ends, you should leave that person because it was not true love. And if you can find the right person, you'll you'll have true love forever. Now, I would say that as a culture, we're adrift and also a victim to these kinds of narratives unless we have some way of establishing a mooring And as Christians, we of all people ought to have a foundation that's built on and resistant to the tides of culture. That's one reason, a corrective. And without that, by the way, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to the same attitudes and anxieties that every other person in the world is experiencing around the issues of love and marriage. And I've seen this among Christians. I've seen it among particularly Christian young men. The anxiety as they approach the wedding day. What is that? Well, it's because we've deeply imbibed the myth of romantic love, and we're not quite sure, is this it? Have I found it? We need a corrective to that. Here's a second reason why it's so important for us. Getting marriage right is part of our evangelism to the world, our display of the goodness of God, getting love right as well. When Jesus said in Matthew's gospel that you are the light of the world, and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He was saying that our witness to the world is not just about our words, the things we say, we communicate the gospel through words, but it's also about the lives that we live. He said, so that they will see your good works. They'll see the overflow, the pattern, the result, the fruit of the life that you live, And then they'll be in awe. And it seems to me that if there's one area in which as Christians we can make a radical impression upon those who don't know Jesus, it's in this area of love and marriage. Beginning, of course, when you're single. And how you approach the concept of romantic love and of sex and of commitment and all of these kinds of things. And then, of course, running into the married life. I think this is a profound opportunity for Christians to be different. And to preach the love of God. Let me summarize for you briefly at the outset what Jesus teaches then on this particular question. Essentially, it goes like this. He says, divorce is not an option. He says the only reason that Moses made an allowance for divorce was because of what he describes as your sclerosis of heart, your hardening of heart. In other words, divorce doesn't happen except for sin, which has so corroded a marriage that it becomes beyond repair. But it ought not to be the case that as Christians, we, ha- we allow that kind of sin to chip away at the foundations of a marriage in the first place. So divorce should never be an option. 
Now, I know that in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't give any allowances to this. It's a very blanket command. In the record of this particular event that's recorded in Matthew 19, uh, Matthew adds in the comment, except for adultery. And I think this, the reason Mark doesn't mention that is because he's, it was just assumed. No one disagreed about that. That was a valid reason. But in, in every other case, or just about every other case, there's no good reason, Jesus says, for divorce. And so I, I, we lay that down as a very hard teaching. And I wouldn't be surprised if you react to that and think that that seems harsh and unfair and pretty rigid, right? And what I want to do is I want to, I want to go back from the, issue, the specific issue of divorce. And we, what we have to do is step back a little bit and look at the sort of foundation stones of what Jesus is teaching here. We can't start with the issue of divorce. We've got to go back and look at love. We've got to look, go back and look at marriage. We've got to understand what this thing is before we can possibly articulate a coherent idea of this whole thing. And the question you're asking was, well, how can this possibly be good news to the world? And I want to talk to you about what I think are the three foundation stones of what Christ says here. The power of promising, the power of sex, and the power of God. The power of promising, the power of sex, and the power of God. I want to start with this idea of the power of promising. Now, the disciples react almost exactly the same way I'm sure that you do in your heart when you hear what Jesus has to say on this specific issue. They react with the question, well, if divorce is not an option, who on earth would get married in the first place? It's not written here in this particular account, but it says in verse 10 that in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. We know exactly what they asked him. Because Matthew, as I said, recorded the same event. And he writes it like this. They said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And they're logical, right? Why would you commit to this? You know, as I was approaching my wedding day, there were a couple of moments when it sort of dawned on me the finality of this commitment I was about to make. And you think to yourself, The strange irony of the day in which we live is that actually people are already coming to this conclusion. Because we've lived in the aftermath of easy divorce from the middle of the last century, so that divorce has become very prevalent, and because it's touched so many lives, and many of you have been touched by the issue of divorce personally, or in your family, or parents, or uncles and aunts, or friends' parents, and because you've seen the traumatic impact of divorce, and it's hurt and wounded you or wounded people you know, the result is that in, a society, in the society at large in which we live, many people are delaying marriage or, or choosing not to enter into it at all for fear of divorce. And so although we've arrived at it another route, we've arrived at it from the effects of easy divorce, we've actually come to the same conclusion as, as the disciples, it's better not to marry in the first place. Look, look at all the destruction and damage that happens. What Jesus is saying here, though, is not this. He's not saying what our culture assumes, which is, okay, the only possible circumstances in which you would do this, in which you would get married, is if you found perfection. Then maybe you can consider marriage, because then you know it will never end. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is something like, more like this. Stay with who you marry. Now, as I said, I think this is hard to accept. And I think we need to un understand why this is difficult to to receive. And I think the answer is because of what I said at the start, that we bought in to this, this myth of romantic love. 
And we've made love, I would say, into a God. And again, just to quote that same author, Jonathan Haidt, what he said about this in that same page, he says that if true love is defined as eternal passion, he says it is biologically impossible. Not just because he, he would say that your body isn't eternal, but also because even in the life you have, what we understand as that passion is, doc, is proven not to last. And yet what we've done is we've elevated that notion of romantic love to be the all-important deciding factor of whether you marry someone and then whether you stay married to them. And we turn the whole thing into a transcendent pursuit of divinity, actually. One of the proofs of that is the modern wedding. You know, there was a time when a wedding was a moment in which the community would get together and celebrate. Families there, children there, um, the whole village there. You wear nicer clothes than usual, but, you know, the main purpose was, was this festivity and celebration and joy. The modern wedding is something different, isn't it? The modern wedding is an opportunity to display, to put the couple on display, essentially. It's exuberant. It's opulent. It's unbelievably expensive. It's one of the reasons why people put off getting married. And is it because we become more generous that we want to spend so much on our guests? No, because we only invite 50 or 70 or 80 guests. You have to make the cut, first of all. And we definitely don't have children anymore because they're just taking up space at the wedding. It's one of my pet peeves, by the way. Don't get me started on that. Um, How are we to teach children to love marriage unless they can come and see us get married, right? But anyway, let's leave that one to one side before I offend too many of you. So what is happening here? I'll tell you what's happening. We have turned the marriage ceremony into a religious ceremony in which Cupid is the divine being present. And the couple are engaging in a kind of, a, a kind of ceremony of the likes of baptism, I suppose, to the worship of Cupid. Now, Ernst Becker predicted this in 1973 when he wrote his book, The Denial of Death. He said that the, he predicted the explosive growth of the wedding industry under what he called apocalyptic romance. And to quote him, he wrote this, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. A divine ideal, a God. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. In other words, every single deepest existential need of your heart and longing is directed at the spouse as the fulfillment of those desires. That's what he predicted, and I think that is largely what has come about, hasn't it, with the modern myth of romantic love. And what's the result of that? The result is that we now have impossible expectations placed upon marital love or upon romantic love as really a desire for transcendence, a desire to meet with God in some way, but in the spouse, in the beloved. Because we use the language of completion. You complete me. My soul had a gaping void, and then I found you. And now I am complete. And what does that do? It puts unbelievable strain on you, first of all, because of the pressure of finding that person who so totally and completely perfects you And then, of course, the crashing disappointment, disillusionment when you realize they're not perfect. And it puts unbelievable strain and pressure on the beloved because they have to live up to an ideal that's that's not attainable. It's an imaginary ideal. And, of course, that then strains the relationship. Now, 
ask, I want to ask with you the question, what is the biblical view of love? And really, here it is. Jesus puts it like this, verse 7. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast. That, my friends, is the biblical definition of marital love. The culture puts it like this. It says, you must find this, this, this almost indefinable experience of love. And then, if, if perchance you're one of the lucky ones and you find it, then you can commit later on. And the Bible flips that around in precise reverse and says, no, you commit. And within the boundaries of commitment, love blooms and grows and flourishes. And become something extraordinary and beautiful. A man shall leave his father and mother and he shall hold fast to his wife. You can see how the myth of romantic love has has wrecked marriages everywhere. How common it is, right? To hear as the excuse for splitting up, you know, we no longer love each other. What they mean is I no longer feel goosebumps when, when I brush up alongside that person. You know, my experience of married life isn't like that. I'm most of the time trying to get my wife to move over in bed. Seriously, you're taking up my space. Now, but, but of course, because we bought into this myth, we're now victims of the story we tell ourselves about love, and our marriages then become these weakened things, frail things, vulnerable to just toppling over. And the Bible puts it the other way around. It says, no, you make it as your fundamental decision in life. To hold fast. And then watch. Watch how love blooms. And some of you think, well, isn't this just unbelievably unrealistic? I remember reading in Tim, Keller's, in Tim and Kathy Keller's incredible book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage. There's, they just cite a statistic, a documented fact, that most couples who are on the verge of divorce, if they choose to stay together, within five years their marriage will have turned around. How many marriages could have been saved by the simple decision, we're not going to divorce? And not just for the sake of the kids, but for the sake of the promise. And the reason is because it's a mindset. When you build a wall around your marriage and say, this is, there's no way out of this, then you find a way to love each other and fulfill one another in the, in the deeper way that the Bible commends. You contrast that with what is now common, the cohabitation model in which basically you're in an extended period of probation. You ever been in a period of probation at work where you think, am I going to get the chop? Am I going to get the contract? What's going to happen? And usually that lasts for three months, right? Imagine in, in, a, in a situation of cohabitation, you're living together for years potentially with always the question at the back of my mind, have I made it yet? Am I going to, are they going to remain with me as I remain with them? Are they good enough for me? And of course, what that does is it dissolves marriage from the bottom up. The foundation is weak. And it fragments. The Bible says, hold fast. That is love. The power of promising. The second thing Jesus talks about in this passage is the power of sex. It's here in verse 7 and 8. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, if our view on love is at odds with the culture in which we live... Our view on sex is even more at odds with the culture, isn't it? And this is why. This is the narrative that we bought into. We bought into this story that once upon a time, 
we believed that uh, we were confined by the boundaries of prudish mentality and sex. And we have experienced as a society sexual liberation and freedom. And the opportunity to express your sexual identity like it's a central part of your, your humanity. And, you know, one, probably the greatest expression of this is the hookup culture in which it is actually easier to have sex with a stranger than it is and quicker than it is to get a parcel from Amazon Prime, right? And they'd even do same-day delivery these days. And, you know, that's one half of the narrative. We have experienced sexual liberation. The boundaries have fallen down. You know, this is open to anyone and it's just harmless fun. And the other side of the narrative is that the Christian way was bound up in legalism and prudishness and, and a kind of judgmentalism. You know, we label people Puritans or Victorians without really knowing what either the Puritans or the Victorians thought about sex. And we basically think that Christians have a, a view of sex as something that's despised and dirty and damaging. Now, there are very important reasons to question that narrative. Let me begin with the idea that sex that we're now liberated, you know, that sex is harmless and we're liberated to enjoy it with no strings attached. Nobody really believes that. Nobody really believes that sex is a purely physical act and that it doesn't in some way touch your soul. Let me offer you some proofs of that. One is your conscience. It is impossible, I believe, to engage in casual sex without in some way your conscience crying out that what you've done is wrong and feeling dirty as a result. Another proof of this, even if your conscience is seared, look at society. Another proof of this is the, the laws concerning minors, children. If this is just a physical act, then why do we make laws to protect children? It's not logical, is it? Or consider the laws about sexual abuse and rape. And the whole ex the explosion of outrage around the Me Too uh, issue. Where people are saying, look, I also was sexually abused. Now, why does that feel like a deep violation of your humanity to experience that? Because sex is powerful. We cannot deny it as much as we want to. And also think about this. Think about how we feel about adultery. Doesn't it create outrage even now? You know, as much as we want to, it's so inconsistent. You know, if you're not married yet, you can have sex with as many people as you want. If you are, then that's it. And you're going to be, you're going to be in trouble if you, if, you, if you transgress the boundaries. And it'll be on the front of the Daily Mail if you're, if you're, if you're famous. It's so inconsistent because we know sex is meaningful and powerful and dangerous and must be handled with care, right? Nobody really believes that it's, it's, that it's, a, it's, a harmless, it's harmless fun. And the other side of it is that the Christian view of sex has been wrongly portrayed. It's not that we think this is dirty, dangerous, and, 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 and hurtful or damaging to engage in sex. It's rather that we think it's something to be honored, something to be cherished, something to be regarded with a kind of holy awe. In other words, we don't have a low view of sex as Christians. We have the highest view of sex. This is what Jesus is saying here when he said that the two shall become one flesh, which literally means one body. You're bound in ways that you don't even understand or fully appreciate. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul's thinking about the whole issue of some of the Christians have been sleeping with prostitutes. And he, he chastises them on these grounds. He says, don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, one flesh with her? For as it's written, the two shall become one flesh. Now the Spice Girls sang about it. We didn't pay any attention. Tonight's the night when two become one. But it is actually a profound truth. Believe it or not. And, um, you know, this is, this is true both to experience, to the Bible, even to science, believe it or not. I was reading again, fascinated by what uh, Jonathan Haidt had to say on this subject. He talks about the hormone um, oxytocin. The body produces this hormone, particularly when you give birth. And when you're breastfeeding and you're bound, you become, you join to your child in this moment of intimacy. And it's the bonding hormone. It creates this, this your, your brain is rewired to bond with this other human being through skin-to-skin contact and through, through, through um, the intimacy of feeding and loving them. And it happens particularly powerfully between a mother and her child. But he also goes on to say that when oxy, he says, when oxytocin floods the brain... Male or female, while two people are in skin-to-skin contact, the effect is soothing and calming, and it strengthens the bond between them. For adults, the biggest rush of oxytocin, other than giving birth and nursing, comes from sex. Sexual activity turns on many of the same circuits that are used to bond infants and parents. Now, no one knew this until recent history. But once again, the Bible's view of these things is vindicated because he's saying it's biologically true. It's true at the level of your soul. You are bound to another when you have sex with them in a way that you don't fully understand. That's the power of the thing. And of course, look, imagine this. When you're, going to the, you're, going to the ho- you're rushing to the hospital because you want to go and give birth. Do you at that point, when the taxi driver gets excited and wants to come in and join you for the birth, do you at that point, you give birth, you hand the baby to the taxi driver to bond with that stranger? Absolutely not. The first thing the midwives do is they say, Mother, why don't you have some skin-to-skin contact with your baby? Because they understand that bond is powerful, potent, and it's unique. And this is exactly the same image of what's going on when we have sex. Jesus says, the two shall become one flesh. And if they are one flesh, the consequence is that there is power in that union. And it's a two-edged sword. It means on the one hand that you can't consciously uncouple without doing unbelievable damage to your soul. To divorce is to rip apart part of you in a way which will never leave you fully healed. You will always carry the scars and the damage of that. Even more so, I believe, than the trauma of losing a spouse to death. Because the divorce has with it the compounding effects of bitterness and hurt and anger and all of the stuff that makes that experience even uglier. Sex is so powerful to join you to someone. On the other hand, this is a positive thing. It means that sex has the potency within marriage to create a deeper union when the marriage is fraying. Marvin Gaye sang that when I get that feeling, I get sexual healing. And I don't think he necessarily agreed exactly with what I'm trying to teach you here. But there is a sense in which when we talk to couples who are struggling with marriage, we say, how's your sex life? You need to do it more often. And it's because sex is binding. It's powerful. Let's not mess around with something so holy and incredible. What a gift from God. And Jesus says, this is at the root of why you can't divorce. You're bound to that person. You're one flesh with them. 
Let me talk to you finally about the power of God. In verse 6, verse 9, let me read you these two verses that kind of sandwich his teaching here. He says in verse 6, that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And then verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now here we're approaching what I think is an even deeper clash between culture and Christian teaching. There was a clash on the nature of love. There's a clash on the nature of sex. Here's the deepest one. The nature of marriage itself. What is marriage? Our society has made two contradictory moves on this question. That on the one hand, we have elevated marriage to mystical levels. And, you know, it's associated with rainbows and unicorns and utopia and ideas of paradise. And this is, you know, this is obvious in our romantic stories. Don't all romantic comedies end with the wedding day? Like they've arrived, like that's heaven. All the drama and the tension was in the build-up to that moment. But once they're there, it's like, well, they're married now. That's the end. That's utopia. That's heaven. And of course, this is the reason, by the way, why I think the philosophical underlying reason why it was so important for gay couples to fight for the equal right to have marriage because even though civil partnership was legally the same thing, it's like the door was shut to heaven. How are we going to experience utopia unless we also can enjoy this institution the same as heterosexual couples do? So we've elevated it to something that's like desirable in the extreme because this will complete and fulfill your life. At the same time, we've derogated marriage and turned it into something which is a more ex- just an expediency or a mere convenience. And I've known this from conversations with friends. How many people have said to me that marriage is just a piece of paper? You know, it's a kind of convenience because it means that you kind of have these legal structures that make life a little bit easier, you know, financially, tax-wise, in, in uh, the house and whatever. And, and, and this is why, by the way, we've, we've now got heterosexuals who fought for the right to have civil partnership because they don't really understand the uniqueness of marriage. We just want the legal benefits, but, you know, we don't need to be married. Now, the biblical view of this thing cuts a sway through both of those opposing views. Because fundamentally what the Bible says is that marriage is a gift from the living God. And this is said in in a couple of ways in this passage. It's said, first of all, in the sense that Jesus says that, that God is the designer of marriage. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And what that means, the implication of that, of course is that God alone has the right to design what this institution is and to set its parameters and the nature of it, that it is one man, one woman, bound together for life. But he also tells us that God is supernaturally involved as the builder of marriage. He hasn't just designed this thing and said, get on with it. I think what Jesus is teaching us here is that when you marry a person, God is intimately involved in the structure of that marriage, whether you're a Christian or not. When he puts it here in this way, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He's saying that there is a supernatural bond that's forged through the institution of marriage. God himself has witnessed your vows. And his spirit has bound you together. Jesus isn't saying here a command. What God's joined together, don't try and pull apart. 
He's saying an indicative or a statement of fact. What God has joined together, you cannot pull apart. And there's a crucial difference there. Now, how does this sound to you, friends? It may well sound harsh and rigid and impossible. And here's Jesus as a single man legislating on matters that you think, well, how could he possibly comment and offer these harsh rules for married couples? But what you have to understand, friends, is that this goes to the very heart of the Christian faith and of what marriage is. In the Bible, what we, we understand is that all of history from the beginning, from before creation to its end, is all the preamble to a great wedding that would take place between Christ and his bride. So that the institution of marriage as it's given to us as humans on earth is meant to be a mere sermon or parable, a visual uh, sort of demonstration of the final purpose of God in history to join his son to his bride, the church. That is what marriage is. So when Jesus is is describing here his high standard on passionate commitment to your spouse, he is not holding us to a standard that he himself is not willing to abide by. He's describing his own ferocious love for his people, the church. In Ephesians 5, it's put like this. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? What was he willing to sacrifice? What was he willing to put on the altar? What was he willing to commit that he would have you as his bride? He says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And he means by his death. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When Christ articulates then a vision of what marriage is, his reference point is himself. His reference point is his passionate love for his people. His reference point is the fact that his love for you cannot be broken, even despite your unfaithfulness. Even despite your spiritual weakness, even despite the mess you've made, perhaps even in this area of divorce, marriage, love, relationship, sex, all of that, even despite all of that, Christ loves you and is committed for you in unwavering, passionate, husband-like covenant love. And what that means for us is this. It means on the one hand that in terms of the way we practice our marriages on earth, we are meant to consciously live out that pattern of love as a sermon to the world about the way Christ loves. This is why Paul says, if Jesus loved his bride like that, it's the kind of a therefore, he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as, Christ, as their own bodies. To put it negatively, it means that when you are unfaithful to your spouse, You're desecrating the gospel itself. But to put it positively, when you are, when you enter into this kind of covenant love, and I know many of you are single, I'm trying to paint a picture which will compel you about what marriage can and should be like. 
when you enter into this, your whole life is preaching the gospel. The other way in which we ought to understand this, of course, is this. Would you want any other kind of savior? Would you want a philandering savior? Would you want a savior who's like one of the playboys of our modern age? Hot, blowing hot and cold. Interested in one minute, bored the next. Would you want a savior who is casual with your heart? And the answer is no. We want a savior who makes a promise and keeps it. Isn't that what we were singing? Promise keeper. That is who you are. Which is why in Romans 8, Paul puts it so powerfully when he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's a faithful husband. I'm conscious that some of you have made big mistakes in life, in this area, and I want to encourage you to bring them to the Lord now. There is grace. You may live with the consequences of those mistakes, and sometimes it's difficult to fully heal yourself or others. But one thing's for sure is that your your relationship with Jesus can be fully restored. And I want to encourage you to come to him now in repentance, to bow your head and pray. But for those of us who cherish this vision and agree with it wholeheartedly and either aspire to it in our future or want it for others that we're committed to singleness or indeed are in it right now in in the situation of marriage, I want to encourage you to give praise to God in this moment. We have such a husband. And we're going to take communion. Just as sex is the kind of the ceremony in which a marriage vows are reenacted and, and the bond is reforged. So also communion is the ceremony in which we reestablish that covenant commitment of Christ's love for us and our responsive love toward him. We eat the bread, we drink the wine, and we celebrate that this love cannot be broken. So let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that even though you articulated this incredible ideal about what marriages should be and what love is, at the same time, your love has moved towards us in grace to wash away our sins. And Lord, we have lived in a dark age, but we thank you for the opportunity to be light, to love in a different way, to commit in a different way, to treat our bodies in a different way to understand what honoring God means in this kind of love. And I pray for power within this church and this congregation to believe this stuff and to live it out. I pray that our marriages will be powerful and strong, preaching the gospel. I pray that our singleness will be cherished in honor and holiness and dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that ultimately you're the great spouse. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the moments in between singleness and marriage will also bring you glory, holiness in those relationships. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray, Lord God, that your high 
standard of your powerful, passionate, committed love would call from our hearts a response of love and devotion to you in Jesus' name. Amen.